So we have the Southeast Conference for today's preview. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this, and there's quite a bit of disagreement between the three of us on each of these teams. Uh, and even just our wins and losses, the teams we think are in the playoffs and out of the playoffs, this is going to be an interesting one. I'm really excited to talk about this division and to help us talk about the Southeast, I, the, the leader in the clubhouse in terms of appearances on the Detroit Bad Boys podcast, Jacob Kivenhoven. How are you, Jacob? I'm just absolutely devastated that I'm doing this instead of watching the debate, but otherwise I'm doing quite well. I, I do want to see those first few minutes of the debate when Trump has to speak his first words, because the last thing everyone's heard from him, not the best thing. So it'll be interesting to see, like, what's the what's the first thing he says, you know? What's the game plan, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, and that's enough political talk for the DBB podcast. Uh, we'll close enough, it there. Really. Yeah, exactly. Um, Jacob, what's your Twitter handle and how can people get a hold of you outside of, uh, DBB? Uh, my, my Twitter handle is jkuyv, that's J-K-U-Y-V, and I guess for a small announcement, I will be rejoining the Grand Rapids Drive this year, sort of as a quasi-beat reporter for them, so follow me for lots of drive news this season. That's wonderful. All right, good. It's good to have you back on the beat with the drive. Quasi back on the beat. However, that's working out with the drive. Well, I didn't introduce Ben. Ben, how are you, sir? Hey, feeling left out. Thanks. <laughs> no, Sorry. Doing, I'm, I'm doing great. It's it's good to be with you guys again. Shout out to the Michigan Wolverines and their 78-point margin of victory yesterday. Are you kidding me? Football, 78 points? I'm very happy about that, so it's good to be talking some Pistons. I know Rutgers is bad, but you don't score 78 points in Big Ten basketball. I, that was amazing. Yeah, I, it was everything about that game was just incredible. The I think two first downs... No third third down conversions for Rutgers. Uh, it's nice to see Michigan playing like this. I still want to see a win over Michigan State before I start to run my mouth. As a fan, I'm nervous about getting too excited this early in the season. <laughs> uh, you know, no matter how good they look, you know, Michigan State will always play them tough. That's right. Yeah, exactly. They'll still play them tough. And that's enough Michigan football talk. Moving on to basketball in the Southeast Division, we are starting off with number five, the Orlando Magic, a team that had a very confusing offseason. I think that's a kind word to use uh, for many of the moves they made, uh, and that included bringing in a new coach, Frank Vogel, on with the Magic now. Uh, so let's get into it. Ben, I'm going to start with you. What is your best case, and what is your worst case season look like for the Orlando Magic? Yeah, I think best case scenario, I really do think they can threaten 40 wins, and I think they can do that by going all in on... Uh, Frank Vogel's defensive schemes, and I think there's some more strength there in terms of Bismack Biombo and Serge Ibaka, and then I think they've also got an interesting big man in, in Aaron Gordon. So uh, their worst case scenario, though, is their lack of depth really comes back to bite them, especially uh, in the backcourt and on the perimeter. They don't really have a whole lot of depth at shooting guard with Jody Meeks um, perpetually injured, unfortunately, as we've talked about uh, multiple times. And they're not super strong at point guard unless Peyton makes a, a really big leap over what he's done so far. And if they, they don't figure out that depth and they don't get some improvement in the backcourt, they're not going to come anywhere close to 40 wins and, and may have trouble uh, getting past you know, 32, 33 wins. Yeah, I think that's fair. Jacob, what do you think? I like that you kind of broke up your best and worst case with kind of a, a ceiling and a floor in terms of wins. Uh, so give us those numbers and then just your thoughts on what the good and bad looks like for the Magic this year. 
Yeah, what I had for uh, the best case scenario was 42 wins. And I think that might even be underselling it a little bit because Frank Vogel, pretty much every year that he's been a head coach, has managed a top three to top five defense. And I could certainly say that this Magic defense this year has more talent than the Pacers defense that ranked third last year with, you know, a rookie big man and uh, Monte Ellis both in the starting lineup. So I think if they can get a top five defense, they'll, you know, you can definitely see them winning 42 games. And then the reason that I'm not thinking that they're going to get to 42 games is that their offense could just be absolutely like last in the league. I think they have a legitimate chance to be last in the league. And if that happens and the defense is just sort of average, then they'll hit 28 wins, which I think I had as my low end. I think it's really fair to question the offense going into the season for the Magic because I'm not sure where they find any shooting on this roster. I know Evan Fournier had a nice half of a season. He put together a good 50 games or so last year, uh, enough to get an extension. And I'm just unsure about where the offensive production comes from outside of some of those big men. And and in in Ibaka and Biombo, I think they're going to be called upon for Frank Vogel to do a lot of the heavy lifting on defense. So where does the offense come from for the Magic? Ben, do you know? Nope. Nope. Well, it's because they're a powerhouse defensively, in my opinion. Offensively, it could be pretty ugly. Yeah, and that's that kind of leads me to my most important player. That's Alfred Payton. Because if this offense can find an identity and find a way to play, it's probably through the point guard. I don't see it being uh, a very open or fun offense necessarily, but I can see them grinding out some wins, uh, playing at a pretty slow pace. I know they have some younger players that probably want to get out and run and could be an advantage in transition, but I think the half court is what they're going to have to stick with in a little bit slower pace. Uh, I can see Frank Vogel being at least comfortable with that idea as well. Uh, So I think it's Alfred Payton for me because... I have so many questions about the offense. I feel good about the players they have defensively, at least the veterans that they have. Uh, But too many questions leads me to Alfred Payton. Jacob, who's your uh, most important for this season? Yeah, I went with Evan Fournier just because I see him as really the only above-average offensive player on the roster. I guess I just, if Alfred Payton does manage to take a big step forward, he's going to be the most important player on the roster. But I just sort of think he's bad, so I went with Fournier. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's fair. Uh, for most important, Ben, you kind of have the the big man combo. Uh, so talk about Ibaka and Biombo and why you think they're most important this year. Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, I think defense is going to drive any success they, they may achieve on the basketball court. And I think those two will be the centerpiece of it. Both of them, obviously, rim protectors and shot blockers. And in the league where it, it's sometimes hard to find even a single shot blocker, they have two. Uh, and I think um, Ibaka is also uh, fairly mobile uh, and able to deal with some of the pick and rolls that they're probably going to have to match up again on, on on basically a nightly basis. So to me, those two guys are the most important players. And also thinking about offense, as we were talking, offensive rebounding might become a big part of their offense, and those two players might have something to do with that. Yeah, where does Nick Vucevic fit into all of this? I, I really like the front court. It just seems that there there may be one too many players to kind of break up the minutes at the four and five. Is Vucevic just another piece? Is he still as important as he was last year for the Magic, Ben? He's an intriguing player. Um, I, I think one thing to consider is that, I, if I recall, Ibaka's only under contract for this upcoming season, a single season. Mm-hmm. So I think to part ways with him prematurely would, would be just that. It would be premature. Um, so I think, yeah, he might be the odd man out in terms of seeing a little bit of a minute reduction this season. Um, 
But the other thing to keep in mind is that Biombo has never played more than something like 22 minutes a game over the course of his career. So even though I, I like him and I think he has a lot of upside, I, I think if you're the Magic, you want to head your, bet, head your bets a little bit and hold on to him um, for insurance and then also for long-term planning. Yeah, and I, he does provide a pretty solid go-to in the post. I think that's something the Magic might need in certain game situations. Uh, it might force you to, to make a switch and, and take Biombo or Ibaka off the floor. Uh, do you see Ibaka in the long-term plans, or is he just kind of a a stopgap in the development of the rest of these pieces? Well, to me, a talent like Ibaka, from my perspective, is if you have a chance to get him, you go get him. Yeah. I mean, things weren't working out with Oladipo necessarily. You have a chance to go get a player who, at his best, is a you know a top three defender at his position and has added some real uh, important versatility to his offensive game and is actually a scoring threat from certain positions on the floor. So to me, if you can get him, you get him. And if he fits, uh, you maybe try to lock him up long-term because they don't really have another power forward on the roster that I see as being a long-term part of the plans. Uh, so to me, Aaron, was, Gordon. Uh, Aaron Gordon, well, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I like Gordon as well. Um, I know you're a big fan, but to me, a talent like Ibaka, you, you have the chance to get him, so you get him, and you see what happens. Jacob, before uh, you talk about Aaron Gordon, just give me your your thoughts on Ibaka, the trade that brought him here, and, and what do you expect from him this season and, and going forward with the Magic? Well, I think that's a tough one. I That was a trade that I didn't like very much for either side because I thought, okay, see if they were going to keep Durant. Ibaka was part of what made that team so special and so hard for the Warriors to handle. But at the same time, the Magic gave up a whole lot if it's just going to be one year of Serge Ibaka. And with concerns about his age, he just looked pretty slow by the end of last year. So if you gave up that much, you gave up a good young player, a high pick, and you know a useful player in Ursan Ilyasova all for one year of Serge Ibaka, that's not a very good trade. But if you do it for you know Serge Ibaka on a five-year, $140 million deal next time, I don't think that's a very good outcome either. So I'm not a big fan of that, but I think Ibaka will play a big role like, I say that my best-case scenario is 42 wins, top-five defense. I think Ibaka is definitely a huge part of that top-five defense if it does happen. And Vucevic, he's a very talented offensive player, but he he can't anchor a top-five defense. So that's why I, I expect Vucevic to be the starter, but I do expect Biombo to kind of overtake him in Frank Vogel's rotation by the end of the year. And maybe I do expect him to be the odd man out, but at least not for a while. And that's why I was kind of skeptical that they would get to their ceiling. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think this is a team that, in terms of rebounding, should be fantastic this year, especially when Biombo and Ibaka share the floor. And even with Vucevic, who's a, a pretty good rebounder as well. Uh, but you're right, in terms of this team being a fantastic defensive team, that future probably belongs with Ibaka and Biombo. Uh, just kind of staying on the idea of looking to the future of this franchise, it seemed to get a little cloudy this offseason with some of the moves, but they still have so many intriguing players. For most intriguing player, I know there's so many players under 26 years old that could be picked from this Magic roster. Jacob, I know you intervened with Aaron Gordon earlier. What is it that you like about Aaron Gordon, and what is his place in this uh, franchise going forward? Well, it's clouded a lot this year. They brought in Ibaka, they brought in... Uh, Jeff Green, both players that you could conceivably see a coach that prefers veterans like Vogel playing in front of Aaron Gordon. Mm-hmm. I know he's talked about using Gordon as more of a ball handler, which makes sense because he doesn't really have the shooting range right now. I think Aaron Gordon has the potential to be kind of like a 
a Paul George type player. He doesn't have the level of shooting right now, but he's got so much skill and so much, much athleticism that I think that's at least an outcome that's in play for him. So I see him looking through this division. I don't think that there are a whole lot of like really exciting young players. I would say Aaron Gordon is probably the most intriguing player in the division to me. In the division. That's interesting. Uh, you, uh, ben, you also had Aaron Gordon as your most intriguing. What do you think of that comparison to Paul George? I think it is optimistic, but also not unreasonable at the same time. I think the question is to me, how much three can he really play? Um, yeah. And which position is he better at over the long term? Um, they might have a chance to tinker with that a little bit, given that they've got Ibaka playing the four, uh, presumably as the starter this year. But really, co-signed with what Jacob said, I think he's he's a very talented player, and he's got a very high ceiling. Um, so yeah, co-signed with Jacob on this one. Aaron Gordon does kind of go the route of becoming more of a 3-4, more of a ball handler. Doesn't he have to improve as a shooter uh, if he's going to stay at the three spot, Jacob? This whole team needs to do that, but yes, he definitely <laughs> needs to do that. That's fair. I, I saw him at least coming out of college as a potential Amari Stoudemire type of player. I thought he could be dominant in small ball five lineups um, oh, and, okay. and having him at the four or five as well. Uh, but his athleticism really could go either way. So I, I think it's fair to say that he could be a great three, four, uh, just put the ball in his hands and, and allow him to see what he can do uh, if he can't improve as a shooter. Uh, but I could see him adding a little bit of bulk onto his frame and becoming more of a dominant post player. Uh, he likes to play above the rim. I, I saw what he did in, in Summer League, and it, I think he looks like a fantastic prospect. He has all of those tools, and I'm sure Frank Vogel's excited to use him. Uh, his development under Vogel is going to be so important, because if he can find a position to guard, I think that's where it starts with Vogel, because that's where the, the time is going to come from. Uh, because, Jacob, you mentioned it. He's He has to find a way around Jeff Green, Biombo, Ibaka, all, all of these players at the 3-4, maybe even the 5 to get himself on the court. It might be tough to do, but he's a very interesting player and he's still pretty young, right? I don't, is he? Oh, he's only, he's barely even 21. I, I don't even know if he is 21 yet. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah. If, if he managed, he was drafted at 18. So I, I think he's, he's still very, very young, but yeah, I don't, I agree that this is not a very good situation from him. For him, you know, it's a crowded front court without much spacing, which I think is kind of the opposite of what you want for Aaron Gordon. So if if he manages to succeed this year in spite of that, I think that's going to be very, very promising for the Magic. Absolutely. Uh, Just to quickly mention my most intriguing player, Mario Hazonia. I liked what I saw in the Olympics on the Croatian team out of Hazonia. And it seems there's now a larger opportunity for him in Orlando, unfortunately because of the injury to Jody Meeks. But I think there's a chance for him to carve out a role with that second unit. Uh, and I would like to see him play in that 2-3. Uh, and under Frank Vogel, I think he's a player that can help to run a second unit because I know, along with DJ Augustine, they just don't have many ball handlers uh, that'll be coming off the bench. So Hazonia's role might be pretty large on that bench. Uh, so I think he is another very young piece that could find his way to kind of push into that starting lineup and, and start to fight for minutes this season. Uh, and I think he had a nice showing in the Olympics, good enough to maybe get the attention of his coach and and start to you know help him get minutes this season. Yeah, I think last thing about Orlando for me is that I think they're the dark horse in the East. They've got two big expiring contracts in Jeff Green and Serge Ibaka, mm-hmm. lots of flexibility in terms of their skill set and their cap profile. 
And one trade for a quality wing could make them a real threat for the playoffs. So to me, they're the dark horse in the East that is basically getting overlooked and I think might really surprise some people. Yeah, I think that's fair. Jacob, do you like them as a, a dark horse, uh, at least just overall in the East? I, I do, yeah. I think that they are you can definitely construct a scenario where they make the playoffs, and I think most people are writing them in as a bottom three or bottom four team. Mm-hmm. I don't expect them to get there just because I think the offense is going to be really bad, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if Orlando made the playoffs. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Frank Vogel. This entire division has, I think, some of the best coaches in the Eastern Conference. Where does he rank just among coaches in this division? Oh, man, that's tough. I think... Uh... He has an argument for one, and it's no lower than three, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he's in that conversation for top three in terms of coaches in this division. Ben, what do you think? I think I largely agree. I don't think I'm quite as high on some of the coaches as you guys might be. So to me, Vogel, I think you can make the case that he's the best coach in the division, but it's certainly debatable. I think Steve Clifford is a similarly good defensive coach who's a little bit more of a good offensive coach. But I think Vogel is probably the best defensive coach in the division. I agree with you. What Clifford has been able to do with the Hornets the last two years offensively, uh, especially this last year with how the team shot the ball and kind of spaced the floor, much different from how they had two years prior, I think that starts to put him in the conversation for one of the, the better coaches in this division. Is there, is there a top storyline that sticks out to either of you? Just, just something about this season? I know this was kind of where we plugged our hot takes as well. So, Jacob, do you have anything big about the Magic uh, before we wrap them up? Um, I guess if I have to frame it in kind of like hot takey language, it's just like this team will be good as long as Biombo's on the floor and not Vucevic. Not that I hate Vucevic or anything. I just think yeah. that they need Biombo out there to be that elite defense that's going to get them into the playoffs. Well, let's talk about that. Do you see them as a playoff team this year, Jacob? And then give me your amount of wins for the Magic. I think they're just going to miss out on the playoffs. I originally had 36 written down, and then over the course of thinking about it, I bumped them up to 38 wins, but I don't think that's quite going to get them there. But I think I, I, my prediction is that they're going to start off the year well, and then they're going to kind of like flame out a little bit. Yeah, I can see something similar. Ben, what do you have for uh, playoff chances and how many wins? Yeah, I'm at 39 wins, which a few years ago might have been good enough for the playoffs. Uh, but I don't think they get there this year with the roster as it's currently constructed. One one trade early enough in the season that brings them some perimeter depth or a ball handler maybe. Um, but I like their position overall. I think they're positioned well for success in the future. Yeah, we didn't go too in-depth on the trades, uh, but I think we all talked about the possibilities of what this roster will look like in a few years. And having those expiring contracts like you talked about, Ben, I think that's uh, an intriguing part of this season. I don't think they're a playoff team. In fact, I have them in the bottom three, four teams in the Eastern Conference. I have them winning 33 games, which is the lowest among uh, the three of us. Uh, I just see them struggling early to kind of adapt to Frank Vogel. I think those younger players that still make up a majority of the roster, I can see them struggling to give the effort they're going to need to on the defensive end while they're still carving out a role for themselves. Uh, they have, I think, enough veteran talent that they'll be fine um, in the middle of the season, maybe end of the season. But for me, it kind of comes back to if they're able to make a trade and find themselves an identity that kind of clears up what this team is going to be going forward. Uh, it's a lot of pressure on Frank Vogel this year for the, if they have any expectations of the playoffs. I hope they don't. I hope it's 
you give Frank Vogel this year to just see what he can do and kind of take the pressure off because it's still a young roster and it's still a roster that's kind of in flux with uh, the contract situation. So it's definitely an interesting team. I think in a few years, I would not be surprised if the Magic are one of the four or five best teams in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, no arguments here. I agree with you. All right, awesome. Well, let's move on to number four, a team that may be heading in the opposite direction, and that is the Miami Heat. The best and worst case, and I know the news has not been great for the Miami Heat as of late, uh, especially with Chris Bosh. What do you have as the best and worst case scenarios for this team on the floor, knowing that the Chris Bosh era is now over as well in Miami? So I think the absolute best case scenario is they cobble something together that maximizes the very few strengths they have on their roster and can maybe try to threaten 40 wins. I think the worst case scenario for them, though, is that they they panic and they try to swing a trade that handicaps their future ability to rebuild, because ultimately I think that's where they're at. Losing Chris Bosh ultimately should signal the rebuild for this franchise, and I think that's what they ought to do. So worst case scenario is they prioritize the short-term winning, do something stupid, get themselves locked into a, a core of players that isn't going to be able to get it done. Part of me thinks Pat Riley would definitely do that. Try try to swing and get this team to be competitive overnight. So you're right, that's definitely a concern. Uh, with the contract that Whiteside signed this offseason, and now knowing that this team is possibly rebuilding, Ben, uh, do you think they are better off or worse off having Hassan Whiteside on this team? I think Whiteside is a fantastic player. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see through the lens of certain types of statistical analysis a lot of the times. And to me, um, I think he's just a fantastic plus, plus player on defense and on the glass. I don't think he's to the level of a Ben Wallace, but he's that type of a player. And I think those sorts of players are underappreciated and undervalued. So I don't have any problem with that contract. Um, I think he can be the foundation of a very, very good defense and a very good rebounding team um, with certain limitations offensively. So I don't have a problem with it, even for a rebuilding team. And just to jump off of the, the foundations of a good defensive team, Jacob, I know you see that as being possible in your best case. So get into that a bit and then talk about your worst case season for the Heat. Yeah, for the best case, I put 44 wins. I'm a little bit more optimistic than Ben in terms of this team's ceiling. I think that they have a ton of defensive talent and another team, you know, they have fresh legs everywhere. They can throw all sorts of different looks at teams. This uh, Winslow at the four lineup has been devastating. And I'm a big believer that Goran Dragic has a chance to replace uh, Dwayne Wade's production, perhaps even more efficiently. I thought he was pretty criminally underutilized last season. So I think with Dragic and Whiteside, you could have two legitimate all-stars in the East. And then I do really, I'm a fan of the young players a lot, uh, Josh Richardson, Justice Winslow. So I, that's why I put 44 wins for their best case scenario. I think that they have a lot of disaster potential though. So their worst case, I had below 30 wins. I think that they also, like Orlando, could have a lot of trouble scoring if Dragic just turns out to kind of decline into his 30s. They don't really have anyone good at power forward, and they have a lot of injury concerns, and (laughs) Deion Waiters is here. You never know how that's going to work out. And there's also (laughs) the chance that I I think that they are the kind of franchise several times over the past decade that when something goes wrong, they have tanked to get high draft picks, and I could definitely see that happening again if they get off to a slow start. Yeah, I can definitely see that as well. On the flip side of that, just to kind of play devil's advocate, Jacob, I'll get your opinion first. Is there any chance that you see an addition by subtraction season 
similar to what the Portland Trailblazers were last year, that given an opportunity and, and more minutes for these younger players, uh, that they can really shine and this becomes a, an exciting basketball team and a, a playoff team in the East? I think that's definitely possible. The one big difference to me there is that Portland was very, very deep, and I don't think Miami is deep at all. And um, if it was just Wade that they had lost, then I would be totally on the bandwagon that this team was going to still be a playoff team. But they didn't just lose Wade. They lost Lou Aldang and uh, Joe Johnson, players that were really, really important for them last year on the wing. Yeah, and that's part of just losing Dwayne Wade probably makes Goran Dragic not just more important, but possibly better, seeing as he'll probably have the ball in his hand more, and we know that's how he excelled as a player previously uh, in stops in Phoenix and um, for the Heat when Wade was not on the floor. Uh, He's your most important player. What are your expectations for him this season without Wade? I'm optimistic about Goran Dragic. I think that he gets into the all-star conversation for guards in the East. I think that he has been very efficient throughout his career in every single stop and he's managed to be good even with higher usage rates and like I mentioned I think he was criminally underutilized in Miami the first year the first full year he was there yeah I agree with you on that uh Ben what are your expectations for uh I'll just extend it to that backcourt for Miami I I guess you can put Justice Winslow Deion Waiters Goran Dragic uh I I think important players for this season what are your expectations for them I'm not nearly as high on the backcourt as, as Jake, but I think that's probably kind of we, where we diverge in terms of our long-term projections for this team. I like Drogic, but I I would ha- have a hard time seeing him as an all-star in the East, personally. Uh, I think he's going to get the chance to put up some big numbers, um, but I don't think his efficiency is so good that uh, he's going to approach the level of Dwayne Wade-level offensive production, even as Wade is declining. That's just my personal take there. I do like Josh Richardson. I think... He's a very interesting player, um, but man, Deion Waiters to me is is not a quality player. He is just a chucker that adds very little to the rest of the offense. And while I like Justice Winslow a lot, I think um, there's still an open question as to what he is offensively. I, I think he's very versatile on the defensive side of the ball. I like that Jacob brought up going small with him at the four is a very interesting compliment to Whiteside, uh, particularly defensively. Um, but I, I just I struggled to see um, any any depth anywhere on the perimeter, um, and I think that's going to hurt him over the long term. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I will say that one thing that's working uh, to the advantage of the Miami Heat going forward is having Eric Spolstra. Uh, last year he proved that he's not afraid to use some lineups that are unconventional, and to try to find what's best for his players. And um, to kind of jump off of that, Ben, our most intriguing player was Justice Winslow. And I think that's someone that gives them versatility defensively and can help to give them some different looks. Uh, I think that's why they have the potential for a Trailblazers-type season, uh, but it would probably probably be because they get out of Justice Winslow enough on the defensive end that they're a top three, five defensive team in the in the Eastern Conference. Uh, and that could be good enough to make them really frustrating. So I think the coach is a big part of that. And also the player, Justice Winslow. I wanted to get some like hot takey Justice Winslow, Stanley Johnson talk going on. Ben, uh, do you have a, I'm sure you have a, a dog in that fight, but. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I mean, I think Justice Winslow is a better player right now from top to bottom. Yeah. I think Stanley is maybe a little more intriguing to me because I think his ceiling on the offensive side of the ball is higher if he can develop a jump shot. Uh, and I, I like Stanley's um, 
athleticism on the perimeter more than I like Justice's ability to slide over to the four and small ball. Mm-hmm. I think that has a lot to do with my personal biases about small ball. But I would uh, take Stanley from the perspective of more intriguing prospect, but I would take Justice as the guy who has done more in terms of adding wins to his team uh, in their very short NBA careers to date. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. Well, let's move on to a player that was really, uh, at, at least caught my attention because I didn't know who he was the first few times I saw his name in box <laughs> scores. And that's your most intriguing player, Jacob. Josh Richardson, right? See, I don't even know his name. Josh Richardson. <laughs> Is that Jason Richardson? Jay Richardson? Jay Rich. That's right. We got another Jay Rich. Uh, Jacob, Josh Richardson... It seems that he's going to carve out a much larger role this year with Dwayne Wade no longer on the roster. Was last year an anomaly? I, I, I would, I'm still surprised to see the shooting percentages uh, and some of the numbers oh, yeah, he put up shooting, last year. The shooting was an anomaly for sure. I think. Okay, but this man, this guy is really skilled. Like he he absolutely tore up summer league. I think he's he really could be one of the major cornerstones for this franchise going forward. I could not believe, like, I'm a draft kind of, I'm a guy who likes to follow the draft and follow sleepers, and I couldn't believe that Josh Richardson lasted until the 40th pick. I thought he could have been a legitimate lottery pick, and I wouldn't have blinked an eye at that. So it was not necessarily surprising to see him succeed in Miami outside of the shooting. So, I mean, he's he's going to be out, I think, six to eight weeks. He's got a similar timeline as Reggie Jackson right now, but Ooh, okay. I'm definitely going to be watching him because I think this, you know, he's just a really good basketball player for how young he is. And it's always interesting to watch guys like that who exceed expectations so much so early. A lot of, you know, sometimes they'll just be out of the league, but you, if you do that, you have a chance to be a star if you're already an above average player like he was as a rookie. Definitely above average. And he, he was fantastic in summer league. You're right. This is a guy that I remember the marquee matchups of Andre Drummond versus Hassan Whiteside and watching some Heat Pistons games last year. And Richardson was a player that would constantly get my attention because his shooting form is so perfect. He's a player that runs the court well, at least is in good def- is, is in good defensive position. I think you're right. He has all the tools to be a really fantastic player for the Heat. And, and what a steal. You're right. That That's someone that Pat Riley got lucky uh, and hopefully he comes back and recovers from this injury well. And if he can shoot even close to what he did last year, I think that puts him in the conversation for being one of the better rookies of that class. Ben, you have Spolster as just an above-average coach. Uh, he's one of the few in this league with rings. Uh, I'm interested to see why you have him as just above-average when you have uh, a few others in this division as good. Rings with a Z, right? That's right. All right. Uh, just it's you. If you made me the head coach of a team with LeBron James, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade, I'm pretty sure I could get a ring. I, and I <laughs> I don't mean that as like an arrogant asshole sort of comment. Like, I just don't think that he deserves a whole lot of the credit for this success. Miami had you have literally the best player on the planet who just basically single-handedly, with a little bit of help from Kyrie Irving, beat one of the best teams in NBA history to win an NBA championship. So I think, to me... By miles and miles, the most important part of that Heat team was LeBron James. And I do think Spolstra is better than average. I think he's been able to get some interesting things out of Miami since LeBron departed. But to me, I I was never particularly impressed with uh, what they did in Miami with the talent that they had. I think they should have won more championships than they did. And I personally think some of that has to do with really some harebrained schemes that they put together offensively Mm -hmm. uh, that that minimize 
the output rather than maximized it. So I, I sort of have a yeah dissenting opinion on Spolstra. I think he's better than average, but I, I don't think he's great by any stretch. How many times we said on this podcast last year that like, okay, Miami just doesn't have anyone on their roster. Like they're going to start losing and they never right. did. And I think you have to credit some of that to Spolstra. Absolutely. And I think some of that gadgetry that you were talking about, Ben, I think it's credit to Spolster. It was good enough last year that he kept that team competitive, and at times I'm not sure how he did that. Between the injuries and and the constant changes to that rotation, uh, I I think it was pretty tremendous. And I look at Hassan Whiteside and Josh Richardson, I have to think some of that goes back to the coach. I I don't know. I think he's a great coach. I think the, the rings do make a sound when they hit the table. Uh, and, and that counts for something in this league. Um, Does that sound end with a Z? Yes, the sound also ends with a Z. Vibrations with a Z or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I think he's a great coach, and this year is going to be a, a further test for him, as it's going to be for Steve Clifford and Mike Budenholzer. You have changes to the roster uh, and big questions to answer. And for Spolster, I think a lot of it is – the future of the franchise, and if this is just a rebuilding year for the Heat. Uh, I know, Ben, that's your top storyline as well. Do you have any idea of what the direction is for this franchise? I don't. To me, if, if I were running that team, I would look to move Goran Dragic and rebuild around whatever you can get back for him and look at Whiteside and Winslow as maybe your front court of the future and then hope that Josh Richardson can just develop at shooting guard and can be sort of a, a 3 and D kind of player and maybe develop a little bit more. And that, that's really how I'd go about it. They have no solution at power forward. They don't have any answer for backup center. And um, I think Dragic is your best trade asset when you look at that roster. I think Whiteside is a good player, but he might be hard to move on that giant contract. Drawing contract by contrast is pretty reasonable, uh, and I think he's a very good player and a very solid point guard, even though I wouldn't you know, put him in the all-star conversation just yet. So I, I think they ought to blow it up, and they ought to commit to a rebuild rather than a retool, which you can get in uh, all sorts of trouble doing. Jacob, what do you think? Is that is that a possibility for trade, or do you see someone else moving? I, I think it's tragic. I agree. Yeah. There are still a couple teams that are kind of looking for their long-term solution at point guard. He's got some team control still. And if they want to tank, I do agree that a good way to move forward as the franchise is, you know, Whiteside, Richardson, Winslow, plus whatever high draft pick they could get this year. Jacob, I know your big storyline as well for this season was just – Again, a question about the team's identity. So with some uncertainty among the three of us with the direction and current makeup of the roster, Jacob, I'll start with you. Do you have this team in the playoffs, and how many wins for the Heat in 16-17? I got them with the same as the Magic. I like the defense. I like the young players, but too many questions about the depth, too many questions about where they tank. I have them down for 38 wins. I don't feel very good about that. I kind of think it's... I have that down as sort of like what I think the true talent of the roster is. Mm -hmm. And I think if they're on the path to 38 wins, they'll probably tank. But I don't want to predict them to tank, so I have them at 38 wins. That's fair. Ben, what do you have? Playoffs and how many wins? Yeah, I don't have them in the playoffs this year. I think they just lost far too much talent. And there's too many holes and question marks on the current roster. And I'm even more skeptical. I have them at 35 wins as, as currently constructed uh, because I just think they lost way too much talent and they don't, they don't have enough there to push the envelope much farther than that. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I don't think this is a playoff team this season. Uh, as much as I do like Eric Spolstra and think he can make this team competitive, uh, I can see this team falling short often this season. I have them winning 37 games and finding themselves in 
absolutely the bottom half of the East, probably closer to the basement than uh, the playoff bubble. The top three in the Southeast now. We get some teams with some some playoff potential. At number three is the Washington Wizards. Jacob, I will start with you. Your best case and worst case seasons for the Wizards. I feel like we have a lot to say here, so I won't ruin it with uh, any sort of prelude. Yeah, my, my best case is 49 wins. I don't know how much of the case for that you really want me to go into now, but I think that they could be in the conversation for a third or fourth seed in the East. My worst case scenario is basically last year was representative of what we can expect from this team going forward. I don't believe that, but I think it's at least within the realm of possibility. And then they could struggle to put up like mid thirties wins. I have 35 wins as their worst case scenario where they could just sort of be below average at everything or their backcourt could struggle with the same sort of injuries that it has in the past. Yeah, Ben, you had uh, also for a worst case season, 35 wins. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about your best case season, uh, because it's a little bit different ceiling that you have uh, from Jacob. Yeah, I don't I don't like this team. Um, A lot of it has to do with the fact that I just don't believe in John Wall and Bradley Beal. Mm -hmm. So I think the best case scenario for them is that those two guys figure it out in a way they've never figured it out before. Because if they're going to win, it's going to be because those two guys play well, in my opinion. But but even so, I think their best case scenario is the eight seed, uh, and they somehow sort of figure out a way to put it together at the end of the season and make a run and get in. Uh, worst case scenario, though, I think this team has a lot of blow-up potential. And yes. I, I think if it doesn't work out, given Washington recent history, Scott Brooks could be on the hot seat halfway through the season. Um, not saying he's going to get fired. I don't want to predict that, but I think there's a lot of unrest in Washington right now because I think at the top levels in that franchise, they really believe in John Wall and Bradley Bill. They seem very committed to those two players, and I, I think they seem to believe that they just haven't found the right coach to, to pull out the maximum potential of those two guys. Um, so I, I kind of see them as struggling to put it together, floundering a little bit as to why, and mm-hmm. in my opinion, it's because those two guys just aren't as good as they think they are. Before I jump off of that, Jacob, why are you higher on the Wizards this season as opposed to what Ben just said in terms of thinking well, that best case is just a playoff appearance? Well, when you look at look at what their last three years have been, right? It's been 46 wins, then 44 wins with a ton of injuries. And then last year, you know, Beal missed two-thirds of the year. Wall, to me, clearly not healthy for the first half of the year. Second yes. half of the year, they were on a 45 to 50 win pace. So, like, to me, there's no reason to think that that 45-46 sort of area isn't the baseline for this team, considering that's the team that they've been for, you know, five-sixths of the last three years. I mean, I don't see this roster as one that's gotten worse from the, the team that won 46 games two years ago. It's It's practically the same guys, except, you know, more experienced, but still in the prime of their careers, and they have a big, you know, defensive center upgrade in Mahinmi, which was kind of their biggest weakness year before. So I think like, to me, it's just a question of whether they'll stay healthy. Cause I think if they stay healthy, the baseline of this team is pretty clearly established to me as, you know, the mid forties in terms of wins. And then if you can get a career year out of Beal, which I think he can, you know, he's a very talented player that just hasn't been able to stay on the court. That's why I have, you know, the upper limit being in the high forties to low fifties. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, I think the Wizards are a really interesting case study in how important chemistry is in the NBA. Is this right, team... and that's and sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No, go like, ahead. That's why I think Scott Brooks is sort of like a decent hire, because I don't think he's like a great tactician in any way, but he 
is certainly one of the best coaches in terms of getting, you know, difficult personalities to play well together and getting the co- the players to love him and stuff like that. And I think he's going to be very helpful towards a, uh, a team that's been in a lot of unrest over the past year. Absolutely. And you and I are on the same page with that. I, I think Scott Brooks he's not going to inspire you as a tactician. And that offense at times in Oklahoma City was much to the demise of that team's, uh, to, to that team's success. Uh, but I think there's a chance that he could be what they need in that locker room because you already have the rumors swirling about Beal not getting along with Wall, uh, which one of them goes, a kind of this like showdown in D.C. right now between who's the you know top dog. And I have Beal as my most important player, Ben, you have Wall. And then- I have Wall as well. Okay. So between Beal and Wall, again, those are the most important players to this team. I, I think in terms of Beal, I think all of us are probably expecting or hoping for a breakout season if this team is going to be successful. Uh, for John Wall, Ben, what makes him the most important player? Is it just being on the floor, staying healthy for a full season, or is it more than that? Well, I think John Wall is a good point guard. I think he's a very good point guard. Uh, I just don't think he's a great player, and I'm not sure he ever will be a great player. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, the reason he's so important is because it's it's his team. He's the one with the ball in his hands, initiating all of the offense. And I, I think right, rightfully so. I think he's their best offensive weapon when you look at this roster top to bottom. So to me, when you've got a guy who's playing that big of a role on the offense and he's your best offensive weapon – Maybe Beal is, we could debate about that, but for me it's Wall. I think naturally he's the most important player on the team. He's the rudder that steers the ship, and if he's really, really good, if he takes a big step this year, then I've absolutely got the Wizards wrong, and they'll exceed the win projections that I have for him. Once you get past John Wall and Bradley Beal on this roster, I think all of us kind of struggle to find a most intriguing player, and I said Otto Porter, and Ben, you said Otto Porter, I guess. It's not really an inspiring roster past those two. Uh, Jacob, you did talk a bit about adding a, a, a good defensive player and, a, and an upgrade uh, behind Marcin Gortat in, in Mahinmi. Is there any other players on this roster that intrigue you for this season? Yeah, I think Sadoransky, the guy that they added, I'm not sure where he came from, but he's a guy who's, you know, they've been trying to bring over for a couple of years. And just anyone who is a big guy who can handle the ball and run an offense while defending on the wing is sort of intriguing to me. He might turn out to be nothing, but if he, if he can sort of be the ball handler slash wing defender that he's advertised as, I think that could be really useful for this team because, you know, their other backup point guard is going to be Trey Burke, who certainly is nowhere near the six foot seven that Sadoransky clocks in at. And as much as I love Trey Burke, as a Michigan fan, he has not been a good NBA player. No, he is he not. He was fine the second half of the year in Utah, but he's been bad for the rest of his career. Yeah, he's, he's not been a good player overall, unfortunately. I think it was a very good trade to get him for nothing, but I, I don't count on him as an above-average backup point guard. I agree. If there was a four-point line in the NBA, I think he'd be a better player. Because <laughs> that really is the strength of his game at this point, is just the range he has on his on his three-point shot. Uh, but beyond that, he has been kind of disappointing. Sadoransky, Jacob, I think is a very interesting player. This is someone who played for FC Barcelona. You're right, because of some contract issues. He was kept overseas. Now that he's there, a six seven point guard that can do a little bit of everything, I think that's a really interesting piece for them. Are the expectation, do you know, out of Washington, that he's going to run the second unit? 
I think he's going to be competing for that job with Burke. Uh, okay. When I watched one of their preseason games and he shared the floor with Burke in the second unit. So it certainly looks like they're going to give him every chance to be like an actual part of the rotation and stuff. But I, I don't know how much he's going to have the ball in his hands necessarily. All right, Ben, anything uh, exciting to say about Otto Porter or do you want to move on? <laughs> I don't have anything to say about Otter Porter. I do have one thing that I've been thinking about, though, since Jacob said something to the effect of I don't see any reason why a healthy Wizards team isn't the team that was on track to win 45 or 50 games or something to that effect. And you mentioned the Wizards two years ago when they made the playoffs. And I do think there's a reason why they weren't able to replicate that success. And I think that reason is Paul Pierce. I think his impact on that Wizards team that year um, was very significant. And I think that showed up most clearly in the playoffs that year. But when you look at the roster they've had last year and then again this year, Pierce does things that no one else on that roster has been able to do, especially offensively. That's initiate the offense. That's handle the ball a little bit. And I like Otto Porter just fine, but he's not that sort of player. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's been the big difference is a Paul Pierce type of player who fills that sort of role hasn't been on the roster last year. And it's not on the roster this year. And for me, that's part of why I think they're going to struggle. I do agree that they miss Pierce, but I do think that they won in the mid forties, sort of a similar win total with Pierce without Pierce than they did the year that they got him. I think it was something like 44 without Pierce and then 46 with them or the other way around. Yeah. It didn't really affect the team much in the regular season, but Ben, you're right in the playoffs, especially part of that was playing Pierce and Porter at the four uh, Randy Whitman kind of had this kitchen sink approach and was trying everything with that roster. Uh, I think a lot of DC fans were kind of saying, finally, that's what they wanted to see from that team. Uh, and then in many ways, the bottom fell out last year between injuries and, and players just not developing past what they had done the previous season. And Otto Porter is one of those players. I think there's a chance he takes a step, but he also could be the guy that's giving you 15 points a game, semi-efficient player, decent three-point shooter. Good enough to start, but not giving you anything more than that. So, Ben, I think you're right. They could use something else to kind of push this team forward. Maybe it's a full year of Markeith Morris. I don't know. I think it could also just be full seasons out of Wall and Beal, but I, I do agree that, that they are searching for like someone else who can do something aside from those two. <laughs> someone else who can do something. Yeah, exactly. That's what the Wizards are looking for. Uh, not sure if that comes in a trade. Uh, just to quickly go through the trades, is there anything looking at this team that, that you see, Ben, that could possibly improve that roster? I don't have a target in mind for them, but uh -huh. again, if it were me playing GM, I would be looking to move Bradley Beal because I think guys who can shoot are always of interest in the NBA. And I think on the whole, I think he's been uh, overrated. I think his reputation has been better than his product. So to me, a guy like Beal would be a natural guy to deal if you're looking to add someone who can do something, as Jacob said so eloquently. That's right. I love the idea of them getting Wilson Chandler. I think he has sort of that 3-4 stretchiness and the strength and can kind of act as a little bit of a ball handler. And, you know, maybe if Denver turns out that, you know, they, they don't live up to sort of the expectations that they're going to improve, he's a very natural trade candidate. That you mentioned that is definitely on the trade market is Rudy Gay. Knowing that he's not going to re-sign in Sacramento, past this season, I, I think exactly what you said for Chandler kind of applies for Gay as well. Uh, and both of them just kind of look like Wizards. I feel like they would both fit pretty well on this team. Uh, I'm not sure what a trade package would be for those players to make salaries work and all of that. Uh, but Jacob, yeah, I definitely like those two 
uh, as potential targets for the Wizards uh, at the trade deadline. What's kind of that top storyline for you, Ben, going into this season with all those kind of worries that you have about the Wizards? Yeah, so the question for me is, are are you committed to this group, in particular the backcourt, or is it time to make a change and do something beyond just swapping coaches around like deck chairs? Is it time to make a significant trade and split up that backcourt, and does Wall go or does Beal go? So for me, that's that's the question. If they underachieve like I sort of expect them to, that's the question I think they're mulling over. Yeah, I agree, and I, I think moving Wall is probably easier given his contract. Um, yeah, I mean, Bradley Bill's going to be making like $22 million next year, right? which is just nuts. It's absolutely nuts for what he gives you. So, yeah, Wall, even though I think he's the better player, might be the more natural trade. I think it's easier to get something in return for John Wall that's interesting to the Wizards, uh, just because I see that Beal contract being difficult to move, given that in a few years, yeah, he's a guy making $23, 25000000 million. That makes the Wizards' decision tough if this doesn't work out this year. So let's talk about that in terms of some pretty just basic ideas and and numbers are they going to make the playoffs and how many wins ben i'll start with you is this a playoff team and how many wins for them this year i don't have them making the playoffs i have them just short uh at 39 wins which is actually where i also have uh i have the magic as my dark horse so no i don't think they're going to make it i think too many holes in the roster for them to get there all right so tied for third then in the southeast and not making the playoffs jacob what do you have uh for the wizards this season I have them as a playoff team. I have 45 wins. Uh, I agree with you. I have them as a playoff team. I have them uh, slightly lower at 42 wins. I see this team right around 500 this year, really basing that on a healthy season from John Wall and Bradley Beal. And putting the chemistry issues aside, I think that's a good enough backcourt uh, to win them some games. They have interesting, unproven depth, and I think that really can lead to a lot of close games and potential terrible losses for that team. Uh, but for as long as Wall and Beal are healthy, I think they have a chance to be a playoff team. I've got them as the, the seven seed, just ahead of the Knicks in the East this year. So let's move on for the fight for the top spot in the division in the Southeast. Uh, in at number two are the Atlanta Hawks. I, I know all three of us kind of have uh, very similar thoughts in terms of wins and losses and everything for these top two teams. So let's start with the Hawks, best and worst case seasons. What do they look like? Jacob, I'll start with you. This was one of the hardest ones for me because I think this team has a ton of upside, but it's also got a ton of disaster potential. And it's also a team that is very forward thinking, very financially conservative. So I could see them just totally blowing this roster up. But I could also see a realistic situation where they're the second best team in the East. So I have their ceiling as 53 wins. That involves Dwight Howard getting back to sort of how he was in the first couple years of Houston. Paul Millsap continues to improve into his 30s, which has just been incredible that he's been able to do that. But if he continues to play at a near all-NBA level and then Schroeder can break out into sort of that near all-star level tier, then you have two legitimate all-NBA contenders and, you know, an efficient offense. I think that is unlikely, though. And uh, the worst case is pretty bad. If Schroeder just isn't that good, then they don't have any good ball handlers, and they will probably look to move Millsap, and it'll be a pretty barren roster by the end of the year. So I had 30 wins as their worst case scenario. A very big disparity between best and worst case. Yes, Jacob. huge disparity. I, I, I don't really I think have a feel for this team. The, the largest of any of the teams, and I agree with you, just in terms of not having any clue what this team is going to be this year. I'm less certain about the Hawks than any other team in the Eastern Conference. And that includes teams we haven't talked about yet. Ben, 
what are your feelings of the Hawks? Do you have any better sense than Jacob and I have on the Hawks this well, year? I think on paper, if you can disregard the potential for injuries, because age and injuries tend to go hand in hand, and this is an old team. Yes. And Dwight Howard is getting old. Millsap is getting old. Corver, I think, is 34 or some 33 or 34. 36, so, I think. Oh, is he that old? Yeah. So, I mean, they have several guys who, if they're healthy and if they can play 22 to 2,400 minutes over the course of a full 82-game schedule, then they could be very good. I'll be skeptical to see them get to 50 wins, but I think they could threaten that. But I think the reality is you're sort of rolling the dice here when you're gambling on players who are this old. And if they lose Dwight Howard for 10 or 15 games and they lose Millsap for 10 or 15 games and they lose Corver for 10 or 15 games, they could easily miss the playoffs just due to the fact that guys get hurt. So to me, I, I agree. I think there's a huge risk here when you're relying that much on guys who played as many minutes over the course of their careers as these guys have. All very good players. Millsap's a very good player. Howard's a very good player. Arguably the best front court in the East. And they complement each other very well in terms of their skill sets. But, you know, it's one turned ankle away from, from all blowing up right in their faces. Yeah, and I think that's the major concern because you look at the the bench for this team and if you get past the starters either struggling or uh, with injury concern, I think this is a real crapshoot this season because you just don't know what you're getting out of everyone else uh, past the starting five. And I have some pretty major questions about the starting five as well. Uh, Dwight Howard and Dennis Schroeder immediately come to mind as new starters for this team. And I'm I'm questioning that fit for Dwight Howard. I think he's the most important player for this team because if he can show even flashes of what he was a few years ago, especially on the defensive end for the Hawks there's a chance this team could be just as good as they were a few years ago. I think they're going to miss Al Horford on the offensive end, but if Dwight Howard can get back to that dominant you know, defensive presence that he was a few years ago, I, I think there's a chance this team could be really great on that end of the floor, even with the concerns I have about guys like Kyle Korver and Dennis Schroeder. Jacob, you had Dwight Howard as the most important. What makes him the most important player for the Hawks this year? I think they're looking at him to anchor their defense, prop up their rebounding, which was I think the worst in the year last worst in the league last year and and yeah, they're making a big bet on him to be able to replace Al Horford because he was he was pretty bad last year and I, I <laughs> loved the the gutsy move that they made to to bring him in and to bet on him being able to be better because I think he can be better. But if he's not, they're they're really in trouble. Yeah, I agree, because if it's not Dwight Howard and you see the Dwight Howard that frustrated the the Rockets and the Lakers franchise, uh, you could be in a situation where that team just is struggling on the defensive end again, and then not having the offensive production of Al Horford to kind of balance out, now it's a real loss for the Hawks. Uh, So did you just say that Dwight Howard was really bad last year, Jacob, or were you talking about someone else? I mean, I think he was I, – I, it all sort of depends on – I mean, he's never anchored a defense that wasn't at least top 10 in the league, and Houston was 26th last year, and he really appeared to have given up on that team, and that's why I like betting that he had given up on – just given up on the team. But also, yeah. you know, there's a lot of baggage that you're sort of co-signing to with Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard still wants to be the centerpiece of a team. He wants to post up 20 times a game, like – if they promised him that, you know, he's going to be able to do that there, they're not going to be good. And if he's not going to, you know, buy in to being a role man because that's not how he sees himself, that's going to be a huge problem. I think he was very disappointing. And that's the way I would say it because I think 
anytime you have a center who's putting up 13 and 11 on 62 percent shooting that's a plus even if he's struggling defensively mm-hmm. and when i would think about this in the context of houston's defense overall i mean they don't have very much on the perimeter to to defend well and i think we saw a lot of this with the pistons last year where Andre Drummond just sort of takes the blunt of all of that. Like he, he bears the criticism for not being a dominating shot blocker, but we don't talk about the fact that Reggie Jackson lets his guy into the lane just as much as any, any, anybody in the NBA. And I would look at the Rockets and sort of see similarities there. I don't think they had much in terms of their perimeter defense under control either. So to me, if, if he can give Atlanta, and he only shot the ball eight times a game last year, which is way down under his career averages. To me, if you give him 10 to 12 shots a game, and if the coaching staff can get him to buy into being a piece of the puzzle, which we've hinted at he may not actually want to be, he might want to be the whole puzzle, but if if he can score at 59% from the field, 12 shots a game, he could easily put up 15 or 16 and 12 and, and just be average defensively, and I think they've mitigated the loss of Al Horford pretty significantly. That's interesting. And I I think with Howard's situation last year, part of it, Ben, I agree with you, was he just was not a big enough part of that offense that he probably just mentally checked out at times because he was just not a part of the game plan for the Rockets. And I'm sure that was just frustrating for him. And then in turn, you look at the box score at the end of the game and it seems like he had a disappointing season. So it's kind of a catch-22 when you look at last year and the production that he had for the Rockets. I th- I still think the Hawks are rolling the dice with Dwight Howard. Um, Absolutely. But I think a lot of that has to do with what can they get out of him as a rim protector and a rebounder. If he is giving them 12 rebounds a game, I think that's huge for a team that is going to have to get some of those second looks because I just see this team not shooting the ball as well, even as it, comparing it to what they did last year, which was a fraction of what they had done the year before. Not to be a dead horse, but like rebounding numbers in terms of the raw numbers can be a little bit misleading. So for me, when I'm looking at Dwight Howard, his rebounding percentages, even at 30 years old, are right in line with what he's done for his entire career. His block shot rate is actually pretty consistent, and it's better than what he was his first couple years in the NBA, even at 30 years old. To me, the big thing was his usage was way down. It's the lowest it's been since he was a rookie. And I don't think players should ever check out on their teams no matter what, but I do think that's a case of what happened. It became clear that he was not part of the Rockets' long-term plans, and he sort of coasted. And I think the hope for Atlanta will be that they can re-engage him and involve him in a way that that gets him motivated to contribute to a winning team. Lots of risk there, I totally agree, Um, but, but I think there's also a pretty high payoff, too. No, I definitely agree, and I'm not meaning to say that Dwight Howard wasn't like a useful player last year. And you know, I I think they they wanted to run him out of town. He probably notices that. He probably <laughs> realizes he's not a part of the offensive game plan. That probably causes him to check out. But they, this was the number two defense in the league last year. And if you're bringing in a guy who was a part of a train wreck team defensively last year and was anchoring a defense that ranked 26th in the league, he's had bad perimeter defensive talent around him before. Something went wrong last year with Dwight Howard. And I think, you know, it was a toxic situation, and I believe in their ability to sort of rehab him. But there's also, I mean, I don't think it's likely that he's going to be as good as he was when he first came to Houston. I think that's fair. And part of the Dwight Howard conundrum, is the person that's going to get him involved with this offense. And that's Dennis Schroeder. Jacob, that's your most intriguing player. And I think he has a very large responsibility for this upcoming season. Uh, Talk a bit about his role with the Hawks and your expectations for him as a player. 
Yeah, he's a really interesting one because he has all the tools, he has all the skills, he makes several amazing plays per game. No one's denying that this guy has a whole lot of potential, but right now, you know, he had the worst net rating on the team last year. They just haven't been a, a pretty consistent thing with the Atlanta Hawks the, over the past three years has been that they haven't been very good with Dennis Schroeder in the game. And I could easily see that he's just playing primarily with bench units and they're you know, their starting lineup is amazing, so that could be hurting his numbers more than anything else. But right now, there's no statistical evidence beyond, you know, points and assists that Dennis Schroeder is a good player who can contribute to winning basketball. I think he still can be, but that's that's something that he's got to prove to me rather than I'm just going to assume that he's going to be a good point guard. Right, and because he's not a very strong jump shooter to this point in his career... I'm not sure how you use him with Dwight Howard. I think that the opportunity for a pick and roll and having Howard as a role man is intriguing. But again, I think it might be easy for teams to defend. It, it puts a lot of pressure on Schroeder if the shooters around him are not performing uh, like they've done the last few years, if they just regress a bit as age catches up to someone like Kyle Korver. It, it's, it's a difficult situation for someone who is going to be new to the starting point guard role this year. And I think Schroeder reminds me a little bit of the way Reggie Jackson was in Oklahoma City, except I don't think Schroeder has been as good as Reggie was yet to date. Yeah. And I think the thing that Reggie added to his game when he became a full-time starter was competent three-point shooting, and I think that's really impacted the, his success on the floor. So I think in a lot of ways, Schroeder has some of those same questions he has to answer. And he has a guy like Howard who is sort of analogous to Andre Drummond. So kind of a similar scenario. Yeah, and this franchise is had rumors before that they were going to blow it up if it doesn't work. We've heard about the the multiple trades last year for Al Horford and Paul Millsap, and while I'm not sure how true any of those rumors were, I think this is a team that if it doesn't work this year, I can definitely see them making some moves around the deadline to try to refocus what the future of the franchise is going to be. Uh, And it makes them kind of an interesting trade partner in the NBA. Jacob, is there anyone in mind on this roster that you see leaving uh, through a trade? And on the flip side of that, is there anything they need to bring in to improve the roster? That's, I mean, Millsap to me steps out as the most obvious trade candidate because, I mean, this isn't a team that's going to sign 32-year-old Paul Millsap to a five-year contract just because they feel like they have no better options. Like, they, if they're going to bring Millsap back, they have to feel good about being good throughout the duration of his contract. Otherwise, they're not mm-hmm. going to pay him. So if they feel like we don't have a good enough core to compete in the East, I think Millsap, they will try to get as many assets for him as possible. A trade partner I thought of was Toronto because they have some good young wing players and also, you know, some extra picks. So uh, the package I thought of was Norman Powell, Corey Joseph, plus whatever best pick they could send. Mm. I I think that would be a decent return for Paul Millsap on an expiring deal, but I, I don't know if they do well then they're going to have to do kind of deadline trades to shore up backup point guard or just get another wing player. Yeah, I really like that trade, actually, for both sides. I think that makes the Raptors a definite contender in the Eastern Conference. That that would be a really tough out. Uh, even, even for the Cavaliers, I think that makes the Raptors a lot better if they can find someone like Paul Millsap. Ben, who says no to that trade, just looking at it on its surface? Gosh, I really like that trade, too, for Toronto, because <laughs> that gives them an entirely new way to think about their offensive scheme because some of the stretch that Paul Millsap gives you. I think if I'm Atlanta and and things don't work out going, you know, into the trade deadline, 
it's probably because Dwight Howard hasn't performed. So yeah. to me, the question is, if you're Atlanta, do I want to try to move Howard or do I want to try to move Millsap? Because I think it would be really hard to move both. Um, Millsap, I think, probably gets you the better return because he's been consistently quality. And as Jacob mentioned, continues to be fantastic when a lot of players are starting to fall off. Um, but then I think you're stuck with a Dwight Howard contract that it's going to be really hard to negotiate if you want to rebuild. So um, I think maybe their best move if they decide to blow it up is just to blow it up completely and have a fire sale on Dwight Howard and get whatever you can for Paul Millsap, because then you're looking at only a handful of players under contract going into next season. Um, and, and a couple of young players who I think are intriguing, Kent Bazemore comes to mind, someone we haven't talked about at all, who just got signed to a huge deal after, I think, being productive, but in a very small, small role so far. Um, so to me, that's how I do it if I'm Atlanta. And that Toronto trade would be, I think, a really nice return from Paul Millsap, actually. So let's jump right into it with playoffs and how many wins for this team. Is this a playoff team, Ben, and then how many wins? Yeah, I think they're a playoff team. I put probably, I think they're probably a playoff team and it has everything to do with health. And I, I think they're in the mid forties. I think right now I have them at 44, um, but lots of volatility as Jacob talked about earlier. Jacob, what do you have uh, in terms of a win total and uh, playoff odds for this team? Yeah, the volatility, like Ben said, is just such an, makes it so hard to nail down a number for them. Cause I mean, I, I mentioned, you know, 53, I can see 30, I can see. So I sort of split the difference and went 43, which I think gets them into the playoffs. But I, I, and I guess like that sort of guards, you know, if they, they'll win 43, if Howard and Millsap are good, but Schroeder isn't, or like if two out of the three can be good, which I think they will be, uh, they'll, they'll make the playoffs. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is definitely a playoff team. I, I'm, I think part of that volatility, you're right. I think we'll know within the first 30 games if, if this is a situation that maybe if they're in a situation where they're going to have to make some changes to get themselves back to the level they were just a few seasons ago. I think there's still enough production there that they're able to put together a very good season. Part of that is just how good they have been against the other teams in this division. I know Mike Budenholzer I saw has something like a 67% win percentage against the other teams in the Southeast. So he's winning two thirds of his games against the teams in this division. Uh, and with all the other question marks that teams have in the Southeast, I think the Hawks have a chance if Dwight Howard pans out, even, even if they get similar production to what we saw last year in Houston, as long as the defense is still in the top half of the league, I think there's a very real chance this team is looking in the high forties so I actually have them winning the Southeast Division with 47 wins in kind of a dogfight with the team we're going to talk about as number one. And the reason they're number one is you both are a little bit higher on this team. Uh, the Charlotte Hornets in at number one in the Southeast Division. So I'll, I'll go to you guys first to talk about the Hornets. Jacob, I'll start with you. Your best and worst case for the Hornets. Before we do that, I just want do you, do you guys want to guess what the Vegas over-under opened at for Charlotte? I, I think it was extremely low. Is it like 39? Yeah, I would have guessed low as well. It was 39 and a half. Ooh, I was wow, pretty close. Okay. Far. Wow. They've moved up to 42 since then, but I thought that they they had an over-under that was lower than like the Timberwolves and Oof. like some other team too, like the Knicks or something. I, I don't know. So Jacob, yeah, why, why, why is Vegas wrong at your, at your preview? Why is Vegas wrong about the Hornets then? I mean, because this is a really good team. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know 
what it is about them. Like their over under was ridiculous last year too. I mean, I think it was like 32 and they ended up winning 48. Yeah. 52 wins I have for their best case scenario. They have absolutely destroyed teams whenever Michael Kidd Gilchrist has been healthy over the last two years. So if he can stay on the floor and it hasn't like he's been getting like lower leg injuries, they've been freak injuries to like his upper body and stuff. And I, I think what has their point differential been with him? It's been like plus seven or plus eight, like, well over 50 win pace. And I think that can offset sort of like the losses that they've had. I don't really think they're going to miss Jefferson and they kind of brought in the bodies to replace the other guys. But I think, you know, if if he's hurt and then some of their guys who had career years regress, then maybe I could see them going 39 wins and like just barely going under that 39 and a half, but everything would have to go wrong in my opinion. Okay, so that that worst case for you is just a lot of is it kind of the freak uh, injuries and issues that they've had uh, well, with players yeah, previously? And I think, you know, Batum had a career year, Marvin Williams had a career year. Those right. guys could just like fall off a cliff. I think it's within the realm of possibility that those were kind of the outlier years for years for them. Yeah, I think that's a. I know we'll talk a little bit more about those guys. So Ben, I'll I'll turn to you for best and worst case for the Hornets. Yeah, I'm kind of bullish on Charlotte, actually. I I have a very hard time seeing how they don't improve, to be perfectly honest with you. I think Al Jefferson leaves a little bit of a hole on offense, but I think what you're going to see them do instead is is do a little more of the stretch uh, stretch offense that you see working so well throughout the NBA. So I think they're going to try, uh, they're going to hope that Kaminsky improves and that he can uh, add some shooting to their second unit that you don't get when Al Jefferson's on the floor. And then I think they're hoping that Zeller is going to be better uh, than anyone else expects him to be. And that he's going to be a sort of a blue collar guy that doesn't necessarily score a lot, uh, but does the things you want a big man to do. And I think really though, the main reason I'm bullish uh, on the Hornets is that I really like their one, two and three positions. I really like Kemba Walker. I think he proved last year that he's a, a top flight point guard. He's one of the you know top five, or 10 point guards in the NBA. I really like Nicholas Batum. I think we talked about him last year when we were talking about who could the Pistons add via via free agency. And Batum was like the number one guy that I would love to see added, but wasn't realistic. And I think he had a career year because he was primed to have a career year. He has the skills to play the larger role that he played in Charlotte uh, versus the smaller role that he had played uh, prior Jacob already elaborated on Kid Gilchrist. I share all of those comments. So I think at the one, two, and three, they're very, very good. And then I think they have competent backups. I think maybe Bellinelli is the weak link in their backup rotation there. But Jeremy Lamb has been a productive player in his role over the last couple seasons. And Ramon Sessions has been a capable backup point guard for a number of years. So I think when you look at the one, two, and three, very strong. And then I think Marvin Williams, to me, is sort of the X factor. If if he flops and doesn't continue his, his very strong play, or if it he doesn't work as sort of a full-time stretch for, uh, then they could be in a little bit of trouble. But I have a hard time seeing why that would actually be the case. I think all indications point to him being at, at least very close to the player he was last year. And then, as I mentioned, Kaminsky already, a guy who intrigues me, who I think the thing that counts in his favor is that when you look at his career in Wisconsin, he made dramatic leaps in improvement from year to year to year. So I think even though he's a little bit older than a lot of the second year players in the NBA he's competing against, I still think there's some untapped potential there offensively that could give their second unit a really interesting dynamic and a really interesting look. 
I think there's a chance that this is, again, one of the better defensive teams. My question then is, are they going to shoot as well as they did last year? Is the offense going to be as efficient? And that, for me, kind of falls on Kemba Walker. But looking at some of the changes uh, that the Hornets have made this offseason, it does put this team in a precarious position at the center spot. Losing Al Jefferson, how big of a loss is that? Uh, are they going to miss Al Jefferson, Jacob? You kind of alluded to maybe this not being a big loss for that team. I mean, I certainly can see, I mean, on Zach Lowe's podcast, he talked about how, you know, these guys really appreciated on their second unit just sort of being able to dump it in to a guy who can get a bucket. And Al Jefferson does provide that, and I don't want to sort of, like, ignore that. But at the same time, I, Al Jefferson, the league is moving away from him. He's kind of old. He's kind of a higher usage, average efficiency center without really any defensive ability whatsoever. So I just – I he's not the kind of player that I look at as a team as the kind of player that a team is going to miss that really wants to be a higher level contender because just there aren't players like that that are productive for these kind of teams. Yeah. And they also did bring in Roy Hibbert and I'm not sure what he can give the Hornets, but I think part of the loss of Al Jefferson, they looked around the league and found a guy that in small minutes can still be pretty effective. So I, yeah, I think and, he does kind of take away some like of that a loss. Huge believer in, I'm not a huge believer in Hibbert. Like, I don't think he's going to be what he was, clearly. But yeah. at the same time, it's it's hard to imagine, like, a better defensive coaching upgrade than going from Byron Scott to Steve Clifford. So I'm a, I'm a believer that he can at least give them something. And with the potential of this team starting Frank Kaminsky and Marvin Williams together, I think that's kind of what it looks like right now, right? Am I it's missing someone? Zeller, but I think oh, is it Zeller? Play a lot. Okay, so with Zeller, I, I guess my question remains the same with Zeller. Having the Zeller and Williams in the front court, is there a worry at all on the defensive end? Big men being able to take advantage of the Hornets, Ben? Yes, there is, but there are fewer and fewer big men that can take advantage of that. That's true. I mean, that's that's what we've been talking about on this podcast for a couple of years now, is the NBA is changing. For better or worse, it's not a value judgment. The way that the NBA game is played is different now than it was five years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you're right. L. Jefferson is sort of a, a lost art. There are not many big men who play like he does. So when it comes to replacing his production, I don't think they directly replace it. They didn't go try to get a low post score to replace L. Jefferson. They're going to replace his production by playing in a different way. And that different way is going to be a smaller center in Zeller who's very likely to start and then your backup five is going to be Kaminsky, who's going to be a legit stretch five. Yeah. Yes, you're probably going to lose a little bit defensively, but offensively, that's how they're going to mitigate uh, losing that low post option. You can just throw the ball into, and he can get his own shot. Yeah, I, I'm I'm fairly sure, certain that when they play the Kings, DeMarcus Cousins is going to have like a 40 and 20 game, <laughs> but there aren't like too many other centers that I'm really scared of having Cody Zeller guard them. Well, and then the reality is in the Eastern Conference – you know, if they're going to try to compete with Cleveland in, in the Eastern Conference Finals, or even the Raptors, who we talked about last week, center is not a huge part of either of those teams' game plans, especially when we talk about the fact that Jonas Valanciunas from the Raptors, we don't even know how many minutes a game he's going to get. He might only play 22 minutes a game. So the fact that they don't have a powerhouse defensive center in the Eastern Conference come playoff time might not hurt them as badly as sort of we intuitively think that it might. Ben, you made a good point that Steve Clifford is probably willing to take a bit of a risk on the defensive end with how this team is now playing offensively. So seeing as the league has gone away from it, and now you have a roster that 
gives you more t- more uh, weapons on the offensive end at the four and five, it does make this team a pretty tough out. Uh, is this the team that everyone's going to be talking about at the end of the year as the the sleeper in the East? I, I guess Ben, with the way you're talking, is is that going to be a tough out in the playoffs for teams in the East? I think so, absolutely. I mean, you have Kemba Walker, who we've talked about quite a bit, who he's the engine. He makes things work for them offensively, and he's proven that he's a very good point guard. And whenever you have a playoff team with a very good point guard, defensively that creates just challenges for, uh, for you in terms of the matchup. So I think so, and then I think they have some very interesting shooters around Kemba that give Kemba the space to get to the basket and then also creates opportunities for, for him to be a passer. And I think he's proven that he's a pretty good passer as well. Um, I think Cleveland is probably best suited to deal with them because Cleveland is just as versatile and obviously more so when you have mm-hmm. Ron James who can play all five positions. But I think they're a tougher out for, for Cleveland than the Raptors would be because I think Cleveland is just superior to the Raptors in terms of the matchup so much more than they are against Charlotte. So would not be at all surprised to see Charlotte and Cleveland in the Eastern Conference Finals. And Cleveland probably wins that in six games, but it's a hard-fought six-game series. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And I, I think they definitely have the depth to make the to make a really nice run in the regular season. And it's part of the reason I'm not quite as high on them as the Hawks. I, I think the Hawks if that defense, while I expect it to take a step back this year, can remain in the top five to seven in the NBA, I think that's still a team, unlike the Hornets, that I just I just feel like they can get it done on the defensive end and win closer games. I, I know what that team's going to look like in late-game situations, I think more so than the Hornets. The thing is, when I look at their roster, they have their their core guys are all young players, and I just don't see any reason to expect them to play worse. So to me, the only thing that could potentially be the problem is if Al Jefferson leaving impacts them in really significant ways that I just don't anticipate. One of the reasons that I think they're being slept on by a majority of the population is not just the Jeff Jefferson leaving. It's also Jeremy Lin leaving. He was awesome for them last year. And then Courtney Lee sort of gave them a three and D true shooting guard. Whereas like those other guys that they can sort of play shooting guard, but they're, they're not exactly what I would call a natural too. And I think they are going to miss Lee and Lynn, though they're going to be harder to replace in my mind than Jefferson. Losing Lynn and Lee, you had talked about firing up the trade machine and, and looking at some, replacements for those two players if if they're struggling and it seems that the backcourt is part of the issue and finding another shooter is is part of the problem in Charlotte uh, what types of players can you see them looking at this season I think that there's two molds right there's sort of a defensively oriented guy kind of like Lee who can maybe hit a three and then there's kind of the instant offense guy who may sort of like Lynn who could slot in they had a lot of success playing kind of another ball handler next to Kemba Walker so for the Lynn kind of guy, I went with Lou Williams. I mean, maybe he could be better defensively in the system, and he clearly has a lot of offensive talent and can play next to a point guard. And the defense guy I thought of was Gerald Henderson if the Sixers decide that they're not interested in him only on a two-year contract. Uh, I mean, he's already played for Charlotte before, so maybe he wouldn't want to go back there. But if they left kind of on, on happy terms, I think he could be an awesome fit back on this team. Yeah, I love Lou Williams for this team. I think that would be one of those sneaky deadline moves that goes like slightly under the radar uh, and could really pay dividends for that team in the playoffs. Uh, I think that's probably what they might be missing. It's that bit of that shot in the arm on the offensive end. If uh, you know the shots aren't falling, someone else they can go to, like they could with Jeremy Lin, and also finding the occasional three from Courtney Lee as well. 
I think if that's what they're missing, I can see them striking a trade because they have some players that they could potentially move uh, if, if they need to upgrade this, this roster a bit. So I think it still makes this team, even without adding someone like that, still one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference. Is there anything even to say, say about Steve Clifford? I mean, like, I think he's I think he's great, but, like, he's kind of boring. Like, there's not much to really say about him. Yeah, he's a great X's I mean, nose coach. I, I think the improvements they made offensively are fantastic, and so much of that is credit to Clifford. Yeah, and Clifford is also the guy, you know that they're going to get back on defense. They're not going to chase offensive rebounds. They're going to defensive rebound. They're going to do kind of all the boring stuff that the Pistons do to sort of sneak in a few more wins every year. This isn't a team that's going to make a bunch of mistakes and lose because of these kind of just like mental errors or just easy basketball errors. And that's why another reason why I feel very comfortable with them as a regular season team. Clifford is not going to stand for guys that kind of just make mental mistakes that can easily be fixed. Yeah, and having that type of coach, I think, makes it very tough for me to see this team not making the playoffs, uh, given the roster. And Ben, like you've said, it's a young roster. I'm finding it difficult to believe that this is a team that would just completely underperform and, and find themselves in the outside of the playoff picture in the East. So I think I feel pretty confident with them, more so than any other team in this division, of making the playoffs. Uh, I'm a little higher on the Hawks, but I, I feel very confident the Hornets will be in the playoffs. I know we all kind of agree with that with everything we've said on the Hornets, so let's go with win totals. Go ahead and give me your win total, Ben. Yeah, so I, I really think 50 wins is a very real possibility for this team. Uh, so I do have them at 50 wins. I have them uh, winning the division. And I think, you know, if things go perfectly for them, I think they could give Toronto a bit of a battle for the second seed in the Eastern Conference. Jacob, what about you? I'm just interested in terms of that you have Toronto as the second seed in the conference and not Boston, but I guess like that's a conversation for a different day. But I, <laughs> I think it was a conversation for last week if you had listened to the podcast. That's right. Oh, perfect. I listened to the first half of it. I'm sorry. I'm at 47 <laughs> wins. I think that with the news of the Reggie Jackson injury, they, for me, are the odds-on favorite to get the four seed in the East behind Cleveland, Boston, and Toronto. Okay. And I think everyone else should do what Jacob's going to do this this week and go back and listen to the Atlantic and then listen to the full Southeast preview and get all 10 teams just to refresh your memory before we start talking about the Central Division and the Pistons. Uh, I have them at 45 wins, but I, I'm starting to think that the, the ceiling might be a little higher for this team. I, I agree with what both of you said about this team and this roster is having just the, the potential to win closer to 50 games and be one of the top four teams in the Eastern Conference. I think right now I have them as the sixth seed with 45 wins. And that that leaves one division to go. Ben, I know you'll be joining me for the Central Division with only five teams left. So, yeah, thank you guys. This this was awesome. Jacob, thanks so much for, for coming on for the Southeast. Yeah, a lot of fun. Hope to come on again soon. Yeah, of course. We'll definitely have you on during the year. And uh, excited that you're going to be uh, covering the drive a little bit and can give us some more insight on the D-League as well. Yeah, it should be fun. Hopefully there'll be a couple things that are worth talking about on the podcast over the course of the year. Yeah, absolutely. If, if Ellenson continues to play like I've seen him in preseason, he's going to spend a lot of time in the D-League. <laughs> so I'll be talking with him. You'll be talking about a first-round pick. That's right. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ben, I'll be talking to you soon about the Central Division. And it uh, looks like you've got three playoff teams coming out of the Central. So I'm, I'm interested to learn what those teams are and if the Pistons are one of those teams. We'll, we'll, keep, the, we'll keep the spoiler for the next episode. That sounds good. All right. Well, thanks, guys.